0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. wanted to um, talk tonight about the place of passion in practice. It's not a word that you often hear, at least with a positive connotation, as the Buddhist teachings are represented. But um, <coughs> it's in there, you just have to read between the lines. It's not called passion. And sometimes we, we get into the, uh, into the notion that being Buddhists or practitioners, Dharma practitioners, We're supposed to have a detached, equanimous, unpassionate, grounded sensibility in relating to the present moment. And uh, it belies what is really called for as we do this work together. There is a spirit of total involvement of deep commitment that's very important in doing this practice dharma practice is not passive not simply resigning ourselves to how things are but it's it's acting in a wholehearted way we've talked about effort and energy, and the, the quality of, of faith, and really putting our heart into the practice. So I wanted to address this uh, this topic from a um, particular angle, and call it passion, and um, talk about one uh, list of the Buddhas that uh, I think points to this, this quality. First, I'll, I'll quote from uh, that great Buddhist, William Blake. <coughs> no, <laughs> William Blake, who is uh, who is really the embodiment of, of compassion in his writings. He says something quite, I think, um, deep and wise that applies to us here. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven are not the ones have no passions, or who have curbed the passions, but rather those who have developed an understanding of them. Not only an understanding so that we aren't swept away by our graspings and aversions and reactions, but an understanding that transmutes that deep feeling, that deep wanting, into something that leads us towards awakening. This issue of passion has been uh, an important one for me to understand in my own practice because um, I do have a, a passionate side. In fact, a very passionate side, although sometimes my, I think my family, when they see me, they think, you know, I've gone pretty Buddhist and they wonder if it's in there. You know, I think the relationship to them, I, I seem kind of you know, balanced. But among my friends, I'm probably the more exuberant one and uh, get excited about things. And um, it's in there. And I um, fortunately became passionate about something that helped cool down, to some extent, that exuberance. I'm an Aries, for whatever that's worth by nature, (laughs) fire sign. And uh, if you know me, if you've been around me at all, you know that I'm a sports fan, fanatic at times, Mm. although things have changed in recent years. but I still look at the sports section first. Um, in fact, actually, a very key moment in uh, in practice for me early on, the first summer at uh, Naropa Institute, when I was falling in love with the Dharma. Um, and I happened to be wearing a um, New York Knicks T-shirt. And in those days, I was um, I was a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks in the glory years, seventy. Uh, 72, 73, 74, for those Nick fans out there. <laughs> mm. And probably three or four of my top ten peak experiences were in Madison Square Garden. <laughs> uh, mm. Non Dharmic experiences, I should say. And I was wearing my Nick's t shirt. And it occurred to me as my eyes were closed, but then I realized, oh, I'm wearing my Nick shirt today. And (laughs) this thought came up to me that really uh, um, horrified me, actually. I went up to Joseph after the the class, after the the sitting, and I said, look, I'm a big basketball fan. Am I going to go to Madison Square Garden after I do this practice for a while and just sit back and say nice shot, Frazier. Yeah. <laughs> good shot. Had check. Yeah. <laughs> because I wasn't ready to go for it, <laughs> if that's what it meant. And fortunately, Joseph assured me, you'll still be a big fan. Uh, uh, he was right. You can hear me down the street, you know, if the 49ers are having a good day. Um, and I can let go a little bit quicker <laughs> when they lose, you know, maybe a day or so instead of a week or so. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to give up that enthusiasm if that's your, uh, your temperament. And I love music. And, you know, love to sing, and uh, love to listen, love to play. Uh, I love to celebrate. I love to celebrate the the beauty of life. But um, I had to reconcile that with this Buddhist stuff. You know. And even though Joseph told me about being able to go to a, a basketball game, still there's, there's so much emphasis on cooling out the passions that uh, somehow I thought I had to stop that and stop being quite so enthusiastic. And it took me some time before I realized that's not so. You just have to be yourself and the Dharma will express itself through each of us in this perfect expression of, of our being. As I say, I became passionate about the Dharma, particularly when I saw that first summer that it was actually possible not to be run by my neurotic thought patterns, which had never crossed my mind as a possibility before. But there it was, and I had strong inspiration and faith, as I mentioned the other night, from, from Joseph, and I said, I'm going to do this. because." I was in such pain, actually, that uh, I was highly motivated. And in practice, and thinking about practicing with with my good friends up here, and with the the people who I respect, um, <laughs> who share the Dharma, um, there is uh, there is a quality of deep commitment that. It's wonderful to practice in their presence. Uh, Sylvia and I have practiced many retreats uh, early on, many years, and um, it's always a, a, a pleasure because she's just there doing it. And Howie the same, many retreats in my early years, and three-month courses and, and others. And, and in recent years, uh, Guy and Sally, who you know, do a lot more have a chance to and are inclined to do a lot more intensive practice than I can these days, um, there's a wholeheartedness in their their effort that's incredibly inspiring. Ajahn Sumedho, who um, we've read a, f- uh, a bit from. When I first heard about Ajahn Sumedho, the thing that stuck in my mind was, uh, was he had come to the Three-month course in 1979, and, and Jack, who had known him in, uh, in Thailand, said, "Well, Ajahn Sumedha, one thing about him you might be interested to know is that uh, he sat in, uh, in his kuti uh, in in Thailand, and there was um, there was a bee's nest up there, and he just sat through with bees all over him, you know, just, yes, I can be with this. <coughs> I was impressed." <laughs> I never had to test that, but it uh, just gives you a, 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 an idea of the, the determination, Aditana, which is one of the perfections of, of uh, the Buddha, one of the ten paramitas. Uh, and if you want to read about that and others, read Sylvia's book on the, on the perfections that came out this year. Uh, Aditana is a determination, a, um, a resolve of mind. It says, "Yes, I can be here for this," and the Buddha is a perfect, the the uh, epitome of embodying that kind of passion. That no matter what he would go through, nothing was going to deter him in his quest. So, as I share some of these thoughts, I just want to put a little caveat here, and that is, uh, I. I don't want this talk to be a cause for the judging mind or the comparing mind. Rather, I invite you to acknowledge and contact that place in you that really cares about the Dharma. And as you connect with it more, to nurture it, to love it, because that's what fuels your practice. And as I share these different thoughts, I want you to really understand that passion for practice is not something that looks a particular way on the outside. It's not about how long you can sit. It's not about how still you can sit, it's not about how many minutes you can have without thought or in clear light or bliss. That's completely missing the point. It's about the place that you come from, your heartfelt connection, giving over to practice. It's also important to know that even when that's there, that heartfelt connection, it's not something that you can maintain 24-7 with all the juice and intensity that might visit you from time to time. Because, like everything else, energies and inspiration are impermanent. They go through fluctuations. So, passion isn't about striving. This just gets in the way. It's about really connecting from a place deep inside of you that's that, that yearns to be free. Mm-hmm. A number of years ago, Ramdas came to us, uh, came to the, the Teachers' Council, and um, and it was a great, uh, great day hanging out with him and he asked this one question that, that has stuck in my mind uh, for many years and it really uh, made all of us sit up. He said, well, we all have to take a look and see, is awakening just a hobby? Is it just something nice to do that makes us feel good and brings a little bit of calm and peace? Are we comfortable with our spiritual life? Or is there something more that inspires us that keeps leading us on? And I I must confess, actually, in in talking about this, I'm not only sharing it for your benefit, but for mine, too. Because here you are, I see you doing it. And um, there's a place in me that wants to connect as, as immediately as I can, as, as truly as I can with that, that same spirit which um, needs to be awoke, uh, awoken from time to time. So as we explore this, want you to just reflect for a moment what turns you on, what motivates you, to practice and continue doing this work, this very profound work that we're doing here together. What is it that keeps you going when, when you say, oh, gee, what's the point to this anyway? Or when you say, oh, well, this is pretty neat. What is it that keeps you going even more? And maybe as you reflect also, think for a moment or reflect for a moment on what is it that might hold you back? Whether it's fear or discomfort or whatever it is, what might hold you back? And is there can you see the possibility of seeing through that story and allowing the full flowering of your commitment express itself? I want to mention one thing that might hold us back which is the idea that we can't do it. That maybe there's some degree of, of wisdom and compassion and kindness that can be experienced, but as far as true freedom, well, I don't know if that's in the cards for me this lifetime. I want to share with you a passage from this uh, great master, Lady Sayadaw, L-E-D-I. He says, in this world, some persons far from putting forth the full commitment prescribed by the Buddha, do not practice wholeheartedly, effectively, to cure their minds of aimless drifting. And yet they say that their failure to attain freedom is due to the fact that these are times that preclude such attainment. There are others who say that men and women of the present day do not have the necessary accumulation of paramis, or perfections, to enable them to attain freedom. If proper effort and commitment put forth with dedicated intention, were to be made, where a thousand put forth that effort, three, four, or five hundred of them can attain the supreme achievement, he says. If a hundred put forth that effort, thirty, forty, or fifty of them can attain the supreme achievement. And here, this proper intention means determination to adhere to the effort throughout one's life and to die, if need be, while still making the effort. So you might say, "Well, I don't know." You know, uh, I don't know if I'm ready to put out that kind of effort. You know? Or you might say, "Well, maybe it's just not my karma." So I want to share with you a story uh, how he alluded to the uh, the other day. Uh, that um, maybe can invite you to see that perhaps you do have that karma. And it was uh, visiting that master that, uh, that many of us have spent time with, uh, Punjaji, or Papaji as he's sometimes called. And I went to him, uh, went with him, Sylvia and I, part of a small group that went together in 1990, when it was, he was, there was still just a small scene there. And I had loads of questions. Just badgered him with questions. And uh, then finally, one one day, he talked about uh, about grace. You know that all you need to do is stop trying so hard, and your natural state is here, and you're already free. Which was very different from you know, the kind of practice of a lot of doing that I had been involved in. And I, I said, well, you know, you say I'm already free, but in, in my model of mind, uh, I wonder, you know, if, I, if my karmic conditions are ripe enough for me to, to be free. And I, I didn't say it in terms of karmic conditions because he talked in terms of grace. So I said, how do you know, how do I know that I have enough grace? As you say, to be free. And he said, uh, grace, grace, you wonder if you have enough grace. (laughs) He says, here you are, you come from around the world to be here. Strong dedication, deep commitment, good teacher, good surroundings grace. You wonder if you have grace. You're neck deep in grace, and you wonder if you have grace. (laughs) And if you think about it, everybody here is neck deep in grace. Isn't it amazing that we have all of these conditions coming into being? Good meditation center, ideal conditions, the time the inclination, everything set up for you to practice with a wholehearted intention. Amazing. So if you have that question about is my karma good enough, let go of that. You're neck deep in grace. One um, list that the, the Buddha has, which comes back to this quality of passion in practice, is called um, the Idipadas, four Idipadas, Idi like Siddhi, powers. Idipadas are called the, the four uh, bases of power. Or bases of success. Sometimes uh, uh, Joseph, in a, one of his books, calls it the roads, four roads to fulfillment, and they're they're actually part of a bigger list called the thirty-seven requisites of enlightenment. Okay, and you know most of the other on the list. So I'll just, for your information, say there's the eight eightfold path seven factors of enlightenment, which we talked about, the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual powers, which are the same as the faculties, ripened, four foundations of mindfulness, four right efforts, and these four these four bases of power or practice. And what they do is that they give us the inspiration depending upon our temperament, which one or combination of them to practice in that wholehearted way that I've been talking about. There's different combinations that we each have. It's not like we're all one, we're all another one. You probably will relate to all of them in, in some way, but you might get a sense of what your particular temperament is. So the first of these idipadas is called chanda idipada. Chanda is uh, is usually translated as zeal, the desire to do. There is desire that leads to more desire, and there is desire that leads to the end of desire. So this kind of desire is a wholesome desire. It can manifest as a personality that is strongly enthusiastic, a lot of intensity. You know, some people are more intensity junkies than others. You know, and as I said, that's you know, probably me. And in practice, there is this quality of enthusiasm and excitement. It can be a fascination for learning, for just discovering, I mentioned a few days ago, that, that quality of awe and wonder. When you let yourself be a little kid on the cushion, you can experience that quality of chanda, iripada. You know in the Bible, uh, that line, Jesus saying, um, except ye be converted as children, you won't know the kingdom of heaven. To let yourself be a child again and discover for the first time what does it mean to breathe, what does it mean to take a step, what does it mean to be alive in this moment. When I was a kid, I am—I um, lived in New York City, I think I, I mentioned—and uh, I was fascinated with astronomy. It was really my first entree into spiritual life, and I just. I would drag my parents uh, every so often, as much as they let me, to the Hayden Planetarium. Cause you couldn't see that many stars in New York, but the planetarium was very cool. Right? Okay. And I would just go in there, wow. You ever do that? You ever look up at the, the sky at night and just go, wow. When you have that kind of perspective, that sense of awe. And you see that this speck floating through space called planet Earth, with all these six billion human stories, let alone all the countless other stories, holding on in that little speck as you look out to the heavens, it kind of puts your little drama in perspective, doesn't it? Sometimes that chanda, that quality of real enthusiasm, can come from highly motivated uh, urge to be free of suffering. And as I, I said just a little while ago, the gratitude that I felt and the inspiration, the possibility, was was just—it was so strong that I was just going to go for it. And probably each one here can think in your own, your own life of what started that bright faith for you. Saying, yeah, I really want to do this. Perhaps you can get in touch with a little of that, that Chanda, Edipada. You can see it in athletes in, uh, or in performan- performers that somehow they kind of switch on, tune into a different energy level where it's so focused, where there's, it's so intense, it's so one pointed that there's something um, unusual and uh, unnormal that comes through them out of that intensity and focus. And so if you happen to be somebody who gets very intense about things you can use that intensity to spin out into drama you know wow can't believe what happened this is great or you can use that intensity in a, a refined way and just go for the truth and so it's a matter of of transforming that natural zeal and enthusiasm in the service of Awakening, and as uh, was mentioned, Sally mentioned it uh, a few days ago. Exuberance sometimes can spin us out, but that doesn't mean that you have to let go of the uh, of the joy or of the wonder or of the quality of deep interest in discovering things. As a greed type, uh, which I am, um, I think it comes a bit more natural to greed types because um, if things are good now, there's always a possibility that they could be better. You know. And if you have that, that quality of um, just seeing that there's more and more to open up to, then you can put your wholehearted effort into practice. Uh, second of these idipatas is called virya idipata, which is the quality of uh, energy and effort. And this temperament is one that says, I will be able to sit through or I will sit through anything. I will be here no matter what it takes. And you see hardship as a kind of challenge rather than as something to shrink back from. Heroic effort is uh, what Upandita used to call it. I remember starting to, when I started to sit with him and he, he talked about heroic effort and he had this one line that stuck in my mind, abandon all concern for the body. <laughs> okay. This is not for everyone, but for some people, okay, I can go for it. If your leg falls off, just note it as it's going. You know. <laughs> but it's that quality of being undaunted, no matter what. This is, um, this is the Buddha, lying line from uh, one of the suttas, Anguttara Nikaya. He says, If the end is attainable by human effort... I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. Imagine coming into the hall with that as your intention. It's really inspiring. Whatever can be done by effort. This is uh, Nisargadar Maharaj. I am that. Which really gives more of a a sense of what this Virya Edipada is. Your sincerity will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems and live by wisdom, intelligence, and act of love. Whatever name you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of the mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. Okay, so now your mind might be getting into thought, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite there. Again, I want to remind you, this is not about being a macho meditator. It's not about seeing how tough you can be, but it's rather, it's a spirit that comes from a willingness to be here, be open to anything, because you are called to open up to the truth. But it's not about twisting yourself up into a pretzel. And so, don't get caught in thinking that it's got to look any particular way. And I want to share with you another possibility. As you're getting into this idea of energy and effort, because you get lots of different messages, you know. Real, practice like your hair is on fire. That's one one famous line. And then there's another one, Manindraji, who's one of uh, one of our teachers, and uh, just a very uh, beautiful and inspiring man. He would say, "Simple and easy. Just simple and easy." or a buddhadasa, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. So, who are you going to believe? Here's from uh, Gendon Rinpoche. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. So you can't get boxed into thinking, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to practice but rather the willingness to be here for anything. Once you're here, there's nothing to do. There's a sense of opening and ease with the moment. It takes effort to get here. That's the tricky part. And this is at the end of, uh, after these, uh, these teachings are given, in Tibetan practice after one has gone through the preliminary practices, which uh, are called manundro, which involve uh, 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, 100,000 uh, visualizations and mudras. You know. So you do a little work and then finally they tell you, just relax. <laughs> We don't necessarily have to go through 100,000 prostrations, but it does take work to get here. It does take a complete commitment to be willing to come back each time you see you've gone, doesn't it? I remember one teacher calling this manual labor in some way. Okay, come on back. Come on back. But once you're here, all of that effort and all of that doing, you can relax the doing and simply be. And in that space of simply being, any extra effort is one of becoming. And it takes you out of resting in your natural state. So this is something that you have to play around with and not see as a hard and fast way to be. But, as we mentioned before, effort comes from the heart. It's a sincerity of the heart. And if you have the temperament that says, I can be here for this. I can be here for this too. It takes a, a quality of courage that some of us have, maybe more than say the enthusiasm. Just, I can be here for this. then. Use that as uh, as as one of your gifts of practice, but not to strain, not to try to control experience, just to be willing to open up to whatever's here. The um, the third is what's called citta, idipada. Chitta, c-i-t-t-a, which is the the name for um, um, for heart, for heart and mind. It's um, and, uh, and consciousness. It's a quality of a full-hearted devotion to the Dharma. It's a bit different than the the chanda, than the enthusiasm and the zeal, because as I understand it, it's once you've tasted the Dharma, once you've tasted the truth, for some people the taste is so sweet and delicious and compelling that everything else pales in comparison. There's nothing quite as satisfying. For me, when when I practice, um, sometimes the word purity is what accesses it for me. There's a place that perhaps you can relate to when things where you're stripped away of all story, of all personality, of all drama, of all everything except for just that direct contact with truth, and it's so clean, and so pure, and so honest, that there is an alignment that that comes, and just that sweet taste. We want more and more of it. And we fall in love with practice. We delight in the truth. I wonder. Did I leave that? Oh well, Kabir will have to go. Here's another one. Okay. Oh, oh. The scent. This is Ramakrishna. The sensitive mother presents various preparations of fish to her hungry children, plain and bland, or rich and spicy, depending upon their tastes and their powers of digestion. Just so, the mother of the universe reveals various spiritual practices. The child enjoys every one of her delicious dishes without exception. Whether you follow the ideal of a personal God or the impersonal truth, you will certainly realize the one reality provided that you experience profound longing. The same cake tastes sweet from every direction. Place your devotion wholeheartedly at the service of the ideal most natural to your being. Know with unwavering certainty that all spiritual ideals are expressions of the same supreme presence. The ecstatic lover has burning faith, In every divine manifestation as formless radiance, as various forms or attributes, as divine incarnations like Ram and Krishna, as the goddess of wisdom who's beyond form and formlessness. These are revelatory initiatives of divine reality, not man-made notions. Blessed is the soul who has known that all is one, that all jackals howl essentially alike. And Punjaji says, just give rise to the single thought, I want to be free. This thought will rarely come out of the entire population. This desire for freedom is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. Punjaji, by the way, he uh, was so... In love with the Dharma, uh, which for him in his earlier years was—he uh, was a bhakti, um, a Krishna devotee. He loved Krishna, and he kept on wanting to see Krishna wherever, wherever he was, and he'd get glimpses of Krishna, and then it would disappear. And he would dress himself up as a, a gopi, as a, a cow, cowherd, uh, a, a cow maiden, a gopi maid which is what Krishna was attracted to, so that Krishna would come and, and <laughs> dance with, with him. And this is, he wasn't the first to do this, but, uh, and this is something that sometimes people do. He just would dress himself up as a gopi and say, oh, please, Krishna, come be with me. How is it for you? You, know. <laughs> you don't have to dress up any particular way. But can you feel how that taste of the Dharma touches you? I'll share a story that my colleagues have heard a number of times, and probably a number of you have heard as well. So forgive me, but I share it because every time I I share it, it, it touches a place in me that that remembers that, and hopefully can touch a place in in you. And that is. Um, being uh being in this New York scene with Ramdas this uh, I had been a, a Buddhist meditator for a couple of years and here was this whole Hindu bhakti scene and um I was I just I really loved Neem Karoli Baba but I didn't know whether the scene was was right for me and Ramdas in this intake interview he said um, well um tell me uh what do you uh what do you think of, uh, of uh, Jesus? And I said, well, I like Jesus. He said, do you love Jesus? I said, I don't know if I love him. I, l- I like him a lot. <laughs> 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 very good teachings. He said, well, what about Krishna? Do you, do you love Krishna? And I said, very inspiring. I love the celebration of, of life. I don't know if I love Krishna what about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, you know, Ramdas, I, I was raised Jewish and um, went to uh, synagogue religiously, uh, every junior g- congregation, every Saturday morning. But in my, as I understood it, my image of God in those early days, those early formative years was this very powerful guy with a beard and a book and a pen and looking out at the world saying, you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a lousy day. And I just I couldn't relate to that image. It, it scared me. It you know, put the fear of God in me. You know, I don't would say that. And so I said, when I... When I hear the word God, I translate it as Dharma, which to me is—I think—what the word God is pointing to, just the perfection of of life. And and that's what, what I do with the word God. He said, he said, okay. He said, um, well, do you love the Dharma? And without a moment of hesitation, I said, yes, I do love the Dharma. He said, oh, uh, well, good did you ever tell the Dharma you loved it? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, go ahead. Just tell the Dharma you love it. I felt really stupid. He said, I'll say it with you. I'll, you, you say it, and I'll say it with you. Just say, you know, I love you, Dharma. I said, okay. I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said... I love you, Dharma, and he repeated, and I said it, oh, maybe uh, three or four times, until one time I just really felt it. I love you, Dharma, and um, at which point tears started coming down my face, and he said, "Oh, there's hope for you yet. Mm. <laughs> it was a very important moment for me just... Because all of those years in my own concept of God and and having some resistance and thinking, oh, maybe I wasn't spiritual or I wasn't didn't have the faith required. When I felt how much I love the Dharma, I realized that I could be in that class. I was a bhakta, and uh, and I've connected all these years how much I love the practice and how much I love the Dharma. And I would guess that everybody here can relate to that. It's not just my experience. And I share the story so you can get in touch with how much you love the Dharma. Why else would you put yourself through all of this? (laughs) There's something in you that has heard that call that you can't pretend once you've been touched by it. So, this is the quality, that chitta idipada, just letting yourself fall in love with the truth, with the dharma. And then the last of these idipadas is called vimamsa-idhipada, or investigation is what vimamsa means. And what it means is, um, when you investigate our situation, you get a sense of the urgency and the precious opportunity we have to practice. When you see what's so, as the Buddha said, we're like children playing with toys in the attic, not realizing that the house is on fire. When you see what's so, there's a tremendous sense of inspiration and urgency That wants to make use of this time. And the particular qualities of this Vamamsa, Investigation of the Truth, can be expressed in what are called the Four Reminders, or Mind Changers. One is the preciousness of this human birth, just how rare it is, how incredibly rare, Out of all the living beings on this planet, we were born human, which it said is the best situation in this realm to wake up, because there's enough consciousness and awareness to see our own reality for self-awareness. And it's true, maybe dolphins and whales have this as well, and other animals do. But we know the human realm is quite Uh, an extraordinary capacity to see the truth. And there is a combination of pain and pleasure, of joy and sorrow, that can help us to wake up. So it's a very unique opportunity. And there's these astronomical uh, um, pointings to how rare it is to to be born a human. One thing that uh, I find helpful in uh, uh, in putting this in perspective, that uh, Wes Nisker pointed out in one article, that there are right now in your mouth more living beings than have been human than have been born human since the beginning of time. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so when you think of all the different possibilities. To be born human, (laughs) rare, right? A second one, second reminder, is impermanence and death. That any moment, it could be over. To make use of this opportunity is really extraordinary. That you reflect on the fact that I am subject to aging, it's unavoidable. I am subject to illness, unavoidable. Subject to death, unavoidable. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. I am the owner of my actions, my karma. I am the heir to my karma. So, to really make use of this opportunity, the time for practice is very limited. This could be your last day of practice, who knows? But if you're facing in the direction of waking up, you're making good use of your time. The third r- reminder is that of karma, cause and effect, that every single moment you're sowing the seeds either for, for suffering or for happiness. And facing in that right direction is a great inspiration and gives us a lot of confidence. The shortcomings of samsara is the fourth of these reminders, that is, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is an endless and futile task. That the real happiness doesn't come from the next hit of pleasure, but from a deeper kind of contentment to be free of that wheel of samsara. So uh, this last one, this last itipada, is not meant to frighten you. or. To, um, to, to make you contracted, it's to inspire you for how precious this opportunity is. And for some people, it can be a great source of, of inspiration for practice. So just to close, this quality of passion, this feeling of passion for practice, see what it is that motivates you. Is awakening just a hobby? We don't have to try to generate passion artificially, that it's more of discovering the passion that's already there inside of you, and that would motivate you to come here. And when we can bring that sincere caring to the moment and have the effort come from our hearts, not trying to be a tough, super meditator, but just from this place that wants to awaken, then uh, it connects us with life in a direct way, and our commitment is really deep. So I'll close with Shanti Deva about what we are all drinking together, and what we are all feasting on together. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives us shade when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited." Let's sit for a moment. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness." Thank you. talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 19, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.